Next speaker is Alisdair McAndrew. Alisdair is a maths educator at Victoria University. His area expertise range from digital image processing to computer algebra. But as everybody else, he mainly loves maths. And has a curious interest in its byways and backlanes, but likely so far he has been able to keep up of mischief. Alisdair, to you, thank you. Thank you all very much. I've just got here without my glass, I can't see a thing. <laughs> I thought the last talk was fantastic. Um, I actually don't want to be an astronaut myself, for one thing I'm too old, fat and unfit. I think I want to be a brewer. Don't you think the Yarra, don't you think the Yarra Valley needs a brewery in it? All well, those wineries, it needs a brewery. Okay, now as you know, I'm, I'm a mathematician or a maths educator, so my talk tonight is going to be about a mathematician. And we're moving from the very contemporaneous with Stephen Hawking, someone who lived quite a long time ago. Now, I think there's a, a general feeling among the non-mathematical community that mathematicians as a whole are sort of rather dull, dry, grey sort of people. The sort of people that have personalities so negative that when they walk into a room at a party, people look up and say, who just left? Um, I'm surprised you haven't heard that one before. Anyway, the, the subject of my talk tonight is someone who sort of explodes that idea. He is as far from being uninteresting as it is possible to get. His name is Girolamo Cardano, known in English as Jerome Cardan, and he was born in Pavia in northern Italy in 1501. That's a very long time ago, and for those of you whose memory doesn't extend back much further than last night's dinner, let me put this into a little bit of historical context. In 1501, uh, King Henry VIII of England, he of the Six Wives and the Codpiece, was um, 10 years old, he was a small boy. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci was at the height of his fame and um, maturity at 49. Michelangelo was 26. Um, Nicholas Copernicus, who had become famous for his work um, about the, sun, the Earth revolving around the sun, was finishing his doctorate at the age of 28. So I hope you remember all this, because it'll all be on the exam, of course. <laughs> Um, Cardan was born, as I say, in 1501 in Pavia. At that time, Pavia was a, quite a reasonable-sized town, about 16,000 people, which is a big town for those days. Had a very well-respected university, which had been founded in 1361. His father was a mathematician and jurist, a uh, well-known mathematician, in fact. Who was his father was often consulted by Leonardo da Vinci on matters of geometry. His mother was a widow who'd had three children. She left them in Milan to escape the plague. And unfortunately, her children died of the plague, but she and obviously Cardan's father had Cardan. Cardan claims in his autobiography that um, during his mother's pregnancy with him, she tried to abort him. No one knows if that's true because his biography is full of all these bizarre things. It might be true. He was a very sickly child. It was unknown whether he would live, but he did. Um, he started life going to the University of Pavia to study medicine somewhat against his father's wishes because his father wanted him to be a lawyer like himself. He graduated in medicine and applied then to join the College of Physicians in Milan, which was sort of the major sort of medical fraternity at the time. At the time of his graduation, he'd already become known for being brilliant, which was undisputed, but also cranky, obnoxious, hard to get on with, unlikable, undiplomatic, spiky. Put your own adjective in, you'll be right. So the College of Physicians were trying to find some way of keeping him out, and they finally hit on his illegitimacy and said, no, nope, not for you. 
So he went off to, to teach medicine at a small, well, to be a doctor, I should say, in a small town called Sako, which is not far from Padua. A tiny town, not much business. Um, he, he had married at this stage, he'd squandered his father's inheritance, and he and his family were so poor that at times they had to enter the poorhouse, but he managed to um, get some of his money back by gambling, at which he became an absolute passionate devotee. There were times in his life he would do nothing for years on end but play dice, cards and chess. There's a story from these times. He was um, in Venice. I'm not quite sure why. He was at a gambling den and he discovered that the cards were marked. In a fit of fury, he got up, took out his dagger and stabbed the cheese in the face. Um, even in these very rough and ready times, it was a little bit below the salt. So he ran out into the streets to escape the, um, the crowd, ran through the streets of Venice, slipped and fell into one of the canals, uh, being unable to swim. Uh, he was, however, rescued by a passing boat, put back on dry land, where who he should come across but the guy who he'd stabbed not half an hour before. This stage all bandaged up. I don't think it was a very big stab. Anyway, the terms of both these guys had cooled. Um, Cardin managed to find himself a new set of clothes. They shook hands and went back to Padua as boon companions. Explain that if you will, I can't. <laughs> now, as I say, he's, I would say I'm talking about a mathematician. All you've heard so far is his medicine and his gambling. The gambling is important. I'll come to that in a minute. His mathematics he learnt from his father, and round about the year 1540, he got interested in the solution of the cubic equation. Now, I take that everyone here is a scientist of some sort, so you've all done some mathematics. So you all know about the quadratic equation. You all picture a quadratic equation in your mind. And if I tell you about the quadratic formula, even if you don't remember, it's sort of a vague idea that it exists. You remember seeing a sort of a, a square root, some A, Bs and Cs, all sort of put through the mathematical mill and then sort of spat out onto a page. The quadratic formula at the time was very well known. What people didn't know was how to solve the cubic equation. That's an equation with an x cubed in it. In fact, before Cardan's birth, um, another mathematician, an architect called Luca Pacioli, had written a book where he claimed that a solution would be impossible to be found. In fact, the solution was found by a gentleman called Niccolo Fontana, otherwise known as Tartaglia the Stammerer, because of a huge facial cut he'd received in his youth uh, when he angered a soldier. Uh, he had found the solution of the cubic and communicated it to Cardan in verse, um, and uh, Cardan had made a solemn oath that he would never reveal Tartaglia's solution. There's a reason for this, because in those days there was no conferences, seminars, uh, journals as we now understand them. What people had there were these sort of mathematical contests of skill. So if you had the solution to an equation, you held on to it for all your might, because it may well be that you would have to sort of meet someone in sort of a mathematical, as I say, contest, and if you had the better way of solving a solution, you'd be declared the winner, and the other guy would go off with shoulders slumped in terrible ignominy. Um, <laughs> So anyway, you also got to realise in those days they also didn't have, as we now have, the nice notations of x's, x cubes, pluses and minuses. It was all done in a very wordy way. To the 16th century mathematician, a number was something you could either you could count with, you know, four glasses of wine, 33 people, that sort of thing. It was something you could measure with, like a length. So um, when Cardan was discussing the solution of a cube, I'll read this, it went something like this. I'll have to find it. He said, cube one-third the coefficient of the thing. They didn't have x's, so he talked about the thing. <laughs> Add it to the square of one-half the constant of the equation and take the square root of the whole. 
You will duplicate this, and to one of the two you add one half the number you have already squared, and from the other you subtract one half the same. Then, subtracting the cube root of the first from the cube root of the second, the remainder which is left is the value of the thing. <laughs> now, it does seem, you've got to um, imagine this, that this is all they had to work with. So, being able to do what is even now fairly solid algebra in this sort of wordy fashion is sort of quite miraculous. They also didn't like negative numbers. So, if they have to write an equation with negative numbers, what they do, they take part of the equation and they put it on a different side of the equal sign, so you had pluses on both sides. They were a little bit concerned about negative numbers. When it turned out the solution of the cubic equation involved the square root of negative numbers, what we now have no problem dealing with, you know, complex numbers, we've all been learning those at our mother's knees, really. <laughs> but in those days, it was a complete mystery. And, um, but Cardan realised, and this is sort of the measure of the intellectual honesty and depth of the man, that you couldn't really go with it. He didn't understand that no one did, and no one would for many hundreds of years after. But certain of these operations of complex numbers, if you put them together, they produced a real number. You know, the solution of the equation, which might be two or four and a half or something else. In fact, in his great book, which I'll come to in a minute, um, he said, I've got to find this quote again. It's a good quote. He said, dismissing mental tortures and multiplying five plus the square root of minus 15, by 5 minus the square root of minus 15, we obtain 25 minus negative 15. Therefore, the product is 40. And thus far does arithmetical subtlety go, of which this, the extreme, is, as I have said, as subtle as it is useless. <laughs> but he did realise that you sort of had to have these things. Okay, in 1543, he published his great work, Ars Magna, The Great Art, which was a complete solution of both the cubic equation, all it's formed, and the quartic equation, an equation involving x to the fourth, which had been worked out in some respects by his sort of um, assistant, a guy called Ludovico Ferrari. This book is, without any doubt, uh, one of the great mathematical texts ever written and certainly the high point of 16th century mathematics. Some people say it really sort of starts modern mathematics. It certainly starts modern algebra in spite of, you know, its very wordy, um, you know, style. Interestingly enough, 1543 was the same year that Copernicus published his um, On the Revolution of Heavenly Bodies. So it's a pretty good year for science. That's the high point of Cardan's life as a mathematician. Um, not long after that, um, it's, this is sort of the 1540s, 1550s, at the height of his fame as a mathematician and as a doctor. He was invited to Scotland uh, to cure the Archbishop of St Andrews, one uh, John Hamilton of asthma, which was nearly killing him. Cardan managed to effect a complete cure. I don't quite know how he did it with 16th century medicine, but he did. He made a completely cured the Archbishop and went back to Milan, where he was at that time the rector of the College of Physicians, a very rich, wealthy and important man. How long have I got to go, by the way? A few more minutes? Um, a typical of Cardano, whose life was full of ups and downs. Uh, come 1560, his eldest son, Gian Battista, married a woman called Brandesia Cerrone, who Cardano described as a worthless, shameless woman. Um, <laughs> She was very unfaithful to Gian Battista and openly boasted that her children weren't his. Um, after a while, Gian Battista could stand it no longer and he poisoned her with arsenic in a cake, of which she died. Now, Cardan, for whatever his faults, loved his son dearly and spared no expense in getting the best lawyers, the best expert witnesses to prove that the amount of arsenic in the cake couldn't possibly have killed the woman. His son, his son must be um, innocent. And it was actually going, it looked like his son was going to get off when suddenly, out of nowhere, Gian Battista confessed. And in the summary, uh, justice of those, he was very quickly convicted, tortured and executed. 
very low point of Cardan's life. Um, this had the effect that um, he was a reviled man. He had to leave Padua for Milan, where he took up a professorship of medicine, where true to form, he immediately got people's backs up. But at the same time, in 1563, he wrote his second mathematical work, Book of the Games of Chance, which for the first time laid down the sort of the, the rules of probability as we now understand them. Almost all mathematics texts and histories will give you Fermat and Pascal as the founders of probability, but in fact, Cardan preceded them by nearly 100 years. So, you know, good on Cardan <laughs> and for the other ones. Um, he couldn't escape controversy um, after that. He um, felt he was getting out of the limelight, so he decided, being an ardent astrologer, this was a, a standard sort of 16th century mindset, nothing strange about that back then. He cast the horoscope of Christ, was considered a heretic, was banished from his town, ended up in Rome, where he had an unexpectedly warm welcome from the Pope, Pope Gregory XIII, who gave him a pension which allowed him to live out the rest of his life in peace. So, Cardan. Leibniz said um, some years, probably some hundred years later, that um, Cardan was a great man with all his faults. Without them, he would have been incomparable. Well, I think Cardan was incomparable. After 500 years, his mathematics work is still revered. He is a name that still comes up in all the histories, and he's still considered one of the great names of mathematics, algebra, and probability. I'll give you Jerome Cardan. Thank you very much. <laughs>